Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. And the first thing I do is hit the wrong screen. <laughs> it's all screwed up. Already off to a good start, guys. Oh, we gotta have more guests on so I can get better at this. <laughs> oh boy! Hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Doctor B- uh, Bill Muck from North Central College and Doctor Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Uh, and then, of course, this week, uh, we have a special guest uh, who, uh, uh, wow, I, I need more beer or something. Or I had too much caffeine. Uh, so uh, former assistant uh, director for biotechnology uh, at the DOD and uh, current uh, chief strategy officer at advanced uh, at the Advanced Research Manufacturing Institute, uh, Dr. Alexander Titus. Titus, thank you uh, for uh, for joining us. Nice to see yeah. you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before we kind of delve into everything this week, uh, all the usual stuff, if you guys uh, like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook, uh, where you can find our live shows every Wednesday around 4.30 Central. Uh, that's uh, Barstool Politics on Facebook. Uh, our YouTube channel, uh, we'll have a direct link on um, our uh, our other channels just because we don't have a, a custom one yet. We need to get to 100 subscribers, apparently, to get a custom one, so keep subscribing everyone's mother needs to keep subscribing um and then uh the podcast itself uh you can find on soundcloud stitcher uh apple podcasts uh spotify google play music most major podcasting platforms uh review us share us like us through there we always appreciate the support uh our merch line you can find on teespring.com uh you'll find a direct link again on all of our social channels uh mugs t-shirts uh, hoodies, things like that. Uh, we'll be adding more stuff in the future, I promise, at, at some point. <laughs> uh, and then uh, for people who were here last week, or if you're uh, new to the podcast, uh, we also have a little bit of a giveaway going on. Uh, so we're giving away a full set of our, our merch gear. So uh, a hat, a mug, and a, a hoodie. Uh, you can uh, also... <laughs> just no to... hat. No hat, did, Nick. Did I say hat? Yeah. T-shirt, hoodie, uh, whatever, whatever. <laughs> Something that people wear. I don't know. We'll get a mask up there soon, too. We've been talking about that. Um, we're going to have a, a link to that on all of our social channels. Uh, you can just enter that. Uh, we have one more week uh, for you to enter, so take advantage of that. It's it's all really good stuff. And it's got our logo, which is super cool. So, you know, it's, it, it's nice. Uh, I, I'm hoping that's everything. <laughs> I'm now out of breath again. <laughs> The staying inside, I'm really not exercising as much as I should. <laughs> I feel like I'm glued to this chair. Um, but yeah, again, Titus, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, we, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we're going to kind of go over everything. We're going to talk about COVID. 
uh, your expertise in synthetic biology, kind of the work you did at the, the DOD, and then do what we normally do, um, which is bullshit and drink beer as well. Uh, but uh... I live my life. <laughs> you basically uh, just summed up my entire career right there. <laughs> it's good to know there's more of us. Yeah. Um, Bill, can you kind of give us an intro of uh, what we're going to be discussing? Absolutely. So we are so excited to talk with Titus today. As Nick noted during his introduction, he was central in the effort by the Department of Defense to develop a roadmap for keeping the country on the cutting edge of biotechnology, and in particular, synthetic biology. Uh, synthetic biology is a relatively new technology that is both commercial and military applications. And while it's probably not something we all discuss regularly around the dinner table, the opportunities and threats posed by synthetic biology have most certainly gotten the attention of governments around the world. But before we get too far, we should begin with some basics. For us political scientists, the study of synthetic biology pushes us to the edge of our scientific and methodological training. Speak for yourself, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, Titus, it might be useful for us and our listeners if you started by telling us a little bit about synthetic biology and why the Department of Defense is placing such a high priority on this technology. Uh, then we can push deeper into the threat and opportunities of synthetic biology and biosecurity in general. We can also look at whether great power competition uh, is emerging over this technology. And then, of course, we can talk COVID-19 and how it all connects. So, Titus, can you start us off with a quick tutorial about what we should know about synthetic biology and why the DOD is so interested in it? Yeah, absolutely. So I've basically been talking about that for the last year straight um, up until recently. So I left the DOD a little over a month ago or so. Um, and while I was there uh, leading the biotech effort, but for synthetic biology overall is so the way I like to describe it is if you think about um, it's a whole new dimension of kind of the way we're going to do technology. So for a thousand thousands of years, we've had physical solutions to technologies, right? So we, we need to move a heavy thing from point A to point B. So we build a wheel and we can roll it, right? That's a physical solution. Then the industrial revolution gave us synthetic chemistry. And so we ended up with polymers and a whole bunch of other crazy stuff. And so now biotech and synthetic biology <clears throat> is giving us a whole new dimension of that kind of next wave of technology innovation. Um, and so the way I always explain what synthetic biology is, is start off by asking people, what is their favorite biotechnology? So do you, any of you guys have a favorite biotech? No. Well, <laughs> Nick's, Nick's got it right there. Mm -hmm. beer. Oh, beer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a microorganism, right? We have yeast in here that produces a product we want, alcohol. We just happen to add some other things. And so we get a biology to produce uh, some product that we all love, right? We're all sitting here drinking beer, biologically produced product. So what synthetic biology is, is engineering those kind of microorganisms, whether it's yeast or something else, to just produce a different product than the one that they naturally do. So metabolism produces alcohol. It's what brings us all together. It's basically what causes a lot of the stupid ideas I do in my career. Um, <laughs> and so when you can engineer those microorganisms to produce a different kind of chemical or to act a different way, that is what the quote unquote synthetic biology is. We're doing, we're adding synthetic parts. And so um, synthetic is also a bit of a misnomer in a way, because oftentimes we find these parts from other places, um, other microorganisms. So a really great example um, that I like to talk about, and then I'll stop monologuing, but um, a really great example is there was a, a young woman who was in the hospital with an incurable infection um, in the UK, and they couldn't figure out how to 
it was antibiotic resistant and they couldn't figure out how to stop it. And so they reached out to a, a professor uh, in the U.S., the University of Pittsburgh, who has collected this database of what's called phages. So they're, they're little viruses that infect bacteria. Um, and he had been collecting this and encouraging people to collect this from around the world for, for his career. Um, and they actually did some data sleuthing and found a, a piece uh, from a natural uh, phage that they then engineered into a therapy that helped cure this young girl's infection. Um, so it was their finding parts um, the same way we would dig through a Lego box, if you will, and find the right piece and plug it in. Um, but the cool thing is this, this particular part was part of something that was found on the bottom of a rotting eggplant in South Africa. Um, mm. And a high school student had found it and as part of a project had you know, sequenced it and put it into this database. And so we can actually pick up these parts that we then figure out how to engineer into other systems. And so we go from, you know, alcohol coming out of your beer to a new chemical or a new material or whatever. We've been talking about how people go back and forth in Congress for four years while this shit has been going on. Do you guys realize that? <laughs> Could you talk about some specific ways that the the do what the, what is the do like applications like the what is the dod doing because it's, it's it's kind of a fascinating idea but it's really curious that uh you know the defense department is thinking about this in terms of a military uh application so what, what what's the what's the interest there yeah okay so i want i would definitely start by saying that by no means anything scary but actually really really cool so a great example um so there's a ton of companies doing really cool stuff with biotech, one of which is actually creating um, like bricks that are made out of biology. So essentially using a bio cement that they can have these bacteria or these microorganisms um, grow these bricks. Hmm. So DARPA, which is you know famous for inventing the internet and a bunch of you know, stealth technology and Siri came out of innovations that came out of DARPA. So it's part of the, the DOD's uh, you know, for future looking research, they're partnering with this company to in and the Air Force to actually try to build growable runways. So hmm. if you take this bio cement and bio concrete and you can spray it down, um, then it can, you know, it actually grows. And so one of the benefits of this technology over maybe traditional technology is that you don't have to use a big kiln and to fire the bricks like you normally. So the amount of energy it takes is way lower. Um, you know, it's a different route if you're having a hard time getting uh, your infrastructure to work. A, a big application of this is dust, dust mitigation. You imagine helicopters landing, kicks up dust like crazy. Um, so if you could spray down this kind of growable cement or concrete, um, then you can actually make that a lot more effective. So there's, I mean, there's countless other opportunities like that. Um, but that's one of the um, kind of, I actually, I started being known as the guy who carries a brick around the Pentagon because I was always <laughs> walking around in a brick and I'd walk into a room holding a brick and people were like, well, this is not that kind of meeting guy. It was whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you get things done at the DOD, right? Yeah. So how, how is this, I mean, is this, this, that technology, for instance, is that something that is happening today or are these sort of kind of, you know, far off ideas that the DOD and that other researchers are working towards? So a lot of it is happening today. So that brick that I carried around the Pentagon was one of those bio bricks. 
So the actual fully, fully growable runway, that's down the road. Okay. But the bricks that are grown in, you know, a controlled environment, um, those are, and they're the same strength as normal bricks, but they just require less energy. They just, they require a different, you know, a set of material that food that you put in with these microorganisms. So that's the here and now, and then adapting it to, to do that kind of next level of, of cool applications that is down the road, but we're very much, um, having this, uh, in everyday life. I mean, there's a, there in, in the private sector, there are companies that are producing new materials for skis and all, all kinds of other stuff um, going on. The, you know, the, the department of defense, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious to get your take on it. I, my students are always surprised when I talk about like when in my intro international relations class, when we get to the environment, for instance, the, the department of defense has been pretty forward thinking for a really long time on, you know, climate change. Cause they see it as a security risk in ways that, you know, we may not be thinking about it. Uh, do you feel is the department of defense sort of out ahead of this in ways that would, would people be surprised? Were you surprised coming into the Department of Defense to see uh, how they were thinking about these things? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, this is the first time uh, in history, I think, that biotech is considered one of the top kind of whole of DOD priorities, uh, which is, is pretty cool. And so a, a lot of times people, or up until now, biotech has been seen as a, as a potential way to create scarier infectious disease, things like that. Um, but in reality, if we think about it, you know, as all the opportunity we can do with it, um, you know, if we have an infectious disease that we need to combat, it happens to be in the middle of one right now, um, how do you make it easier to uh, produce vaccines faster and things like that? But that same technology you use to do that, a lot of how we push that technology forward would improve our ability to do, say, global runway or engineer um, other kind of technology. So, I mean, on, on the beard front, um, there's a, an academic group that came out of Berkeley that engineered their, be their yeast to produce hop flavoring as well. Um, so, I mean, people are innovating anything from, you know, microbes that produce mar marijuana and alcohol and hops to, um, you know, runways and other kinds of things. And so it is very forward leaning. And, and oftentimes military, you know, research and stuff that the military has money to do these sorts of things. I, I think of GPS, for instance, right, which was basically developed to my understanding to target nuclear weapons, right? And now there's a great benefit in that we all use it in other ways. So let, let me, I mean, I don't, if, if we're not ready to shift the conversation, we don't have to, but you, you keep talking about all these really positive things that come out of this and those are really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like, you know, with any sort of technological advance, Technology is a tool, right? It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. And, and uh, you know, you talk about how it shouldn't be scary and we can just leave the U.S. out of it and what they're doing. But the assumption could be that if this technology is growing, there are bad actors in the world yep. that might be using this for other purposes. Is that right. part of what goes into the thinking of, you know, in, from a security standpoint or, or is that something we should be afraid of? Uh, it's certainly something that goes into thinking with the security standpoint. Um, I often, for for the general public who's often wor you know worried about engineering new bioweapons or something, um, that is something that there's there's constant conversations around. How do we understand what's possible? How do we prevent um, something like that from happening? And uh, one of the things that 
I always try to tell people is if you think, so if you think of, if you only think of it as scary, then you're only thinking of, um, you know, preventing that kind of narrow set of really bad things, but that narrow set of things. But if we, if we reframe our perspective on the technology in general, which is why I spend so much time thinking of the opportunity, if we think of it as an opportunity to do all kinds of stuff, then one of those opportunities is to help prevent the bad things or respond when the bad things happen. So yes, it's absolutely uh, making it more and more possible to do things we don't want. But at the same time, it's making it possible to do a lot more of the things we do want. Um, and so we need to stay ahead of those kind of scary things. It's a, it's a really re- interesting thought there. So what are other countries, you know, whenever I think about who's causing trouble, you know, China and Russia, thinking about ways of pushing back against the United States, are you seeing other states use this te- technology in different ways? Is that is that part of the concern in the DOD is how do we how do we use it, but also how do we respond to other actors? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it's not. It's also not just on a um, kind of threat in the way the traditional sense. You know, you made the comment about great power competition. Yeah, you think about economic competitiveness, especially kind of going forward. We see. I mean, this COVID pandemic has really hurt global economies. So how do we? Who rebuilds their economy faster and stronger is going to have that edge, right? It's always this big economic, um, you know, GDP and economy competition. And so if you think of countries like China, um, we, you know, you could talk about the, the scary, scary things, but, you know, who knows what they're doing? We don't really have great insight into everything that China does, except we know that China has definitely made biotech a priority. They've announced it as kind of a national priority. But if you think about all the applications of um, more like better food sources, environmental remediation, pollution decontamination, right? If you think if you have a country with billions of people in it, you're going to need to start thinking of basically internal, how do we solve our internal problems to then be more competitive, right? So it's a, it's a, it's actually a, I think, in my opinion, it's a harder challenge because when you have incentives to that like really big competition incentive, it's different than saying, all right, we know that there's one type of bad thing that we can engineer with this. So we're going to worry about preventing that. But how do you say, all right, we need to build a stronger economy faster after this pandemic. So that way we're still the global leading economy. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about like the the race to get to the moon, right? It wasn't for necessarily military means, but there were certainly lots of implications from being the first one to do that. Right. Strategic competition is is paramount, uh, you know, across the world. Um, yes, there are definitely military and specific um, kind of specific competitions, but from a whole of country uh, competitive perspective, yeah. When when we saw Sputnik two happen, that was a marker that that competition might be shifting, that advantage might be shifting. And so we had a race to the moon. You had the quote in there about we go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard, right? That's perfect. Um, and also that the race to the moon, the human genome project, these are great examples of what, where the U.S. has real strength. We have this phenomenal kind of widespread intellectual, you know, curiosity, innovation, our art, we have great schools, we have great companies, we have great technology. But as soon as, you know, the couple times in history where we've chosen to point all that at something, Race to the Moon, the Human Genome Project, we've done some amazing things. Um, and so that's where we really need to keep that going. 
So let me ask a couple of follow-ups to that. Where do we stand now? Uh, you know, I, we, there are these examples of the U.S. kind of being in the lead in the past. Um, are, are we, you know, if we're looking at other countries around the world, China, whoever else who's investing in this Europe, are we sort of all at the same place? Or are we already kind of starting from you know, some level of behind? And then the other, the other part of this question is part of, part of it is that we, we, before, you know, when we talked last week before we were you know, on the air, you talked about how scientists aren't always great at marketing, right? So part of this is selling people on an idea that's abstract and that's distant and that it requires investment and that has payoff but that's hard to understand in some way. So how do we, you know, I think about the space race and all the benefits to it, but there was sort of a leap of faith that had to happen in the beginning. How, how do you sell people on this? How do you get people behind this? Especially, you know, we're so, <laughs> there's so much division, division and cynicism these days as well. Yeah. Well, I think that, so of course, lots of people don't like the term marketing when it comes to technology and government and stuff, but in reality, it's telling that story. So that's the reason I carried a brick around the Pentagon. Right. That is a very visual representation of something you can do with biotech. Um, but also, it depends on who you talk to. There, That's one of the crazy things about biotech is it can impact so much. So if you're an environmental uh, activist, then we can talk about all the environmental benefits of going more green, more bio-based. How do we then clean up all the PFAS and PFOA? Um, using some biotech solution. If you're in, you know, if you're interested from an economy standpoint, the bioeconomy and our ability to produce new products is going to have a huge return on investment. We're seeing huge uh, investment dollars going into the synthetic biology industry. Or if you're thinking from a military competition standpoint, um, it has the ability to, right? I, I, as I described, kind of a whole third axis of technology development to give you a unique advantage. So we need to make sure we um, are communicating those like how do you how do you tell that story to make it so whoever cares knows how it impacts why they care so in the as any new technology comes out most of the field is led by the scientists who are really pushing that field um but i mean for everyone who has a phd and went through academia knows that they they teach you to write a paper that most people don't enjoy reading and put it out there and hope someone enjoys reading it which no one does. No one enjoys reading academic papers. And that's where most of this content is, is set up. Um, and so that's the, but if you see other, you know, as, t as industries and technologies mature, you start to bring it, it, it starts to be more accessible to more people. So you have the people who are the storytellers and the business people. And that's really where we see this, um, the synthetic biology industry going. It's, it's there and it's progressing very quickly as we're starting to get lots of perspectives so we're, we're on that uptick. So for example, the bioeconomy is a big concept that has been um, really focused on lately, both from a competitive standpoint and a defensive standpoint. January of this year was National Bioeconomy Month. Um, most people not in the field don't know that, but it wasn't, wasn't well marketed. <laughs> but those of us in the field were excited because we start to, once you start to get national recognition of how important this is, you have big emphasis. That's when dollars start to flow. Um, and, and then we start, you know, it's all about kind of exponential growth and interest. At first you get a couple people. I mean, it's going to be just like your podcast viewership, right? So you get a couple of core. You have four moms right here Shut who are going to watch every single one of them. Right. 
and then over time you really get that pickup. So it's the same thing, um, but it's making sure that your content, and so in this case it'd be whatever biotech you're doing, is relatable to to that consumer. And so that's we're going there, um, and that's where I spent most of my time at the DoD is communication and storytelling, because people, you know, I like I kindly affectionately refer to most of the DoD as the Zoom and Boom people. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, but you can, you can viscerally understand what happens when a rocket strikes something and explodes. Like we get it, but biology and chemistry, if you're not an expert in it is kind of a faith-based science until you really understand it. Right. Mm-hmm. Trust me. There are little tiny cells in here producing alcohol. <laughs> trust me. But then you drink it and you're like, I trust you. Trust you. We're good. Right. <laughs> so we don't have that same kind of analog for other versions of biotech. Um, but we're getting there. So that's why I carried a brick around. That's where there's a lot of companies doing a lot of phenomenal stuff, but it is, it is picking up. So we're, I mean, we have all the, the U S has all these natural advantages that you've mentioned, you know, the university system and all sorts of other things that going for it. Are we, is the, as a result, are we a world leader in this? Are you concerned that other countries are taking it more seriously than us? Um, I don't think, so I think that I think that we are a world leader right now. I think the concern needs to be that we lose that leadership. Um, so there's lots of conversation um, when any when any new technology comes out and it might be scary. There's conversation about export control. You know, how do we lock it down? Or you know, if we're worried about foreign influence, how do we prevent? Right, immigration's a big conversation. But in reality. If we're no, the the moment we become the country that people don't want to steal IP from and right, if we're not the source of the most stolen IP in the world, then we're not the leader, Hmm. right? Because if we're, it's a, it's a, trust me, people don't love when I talk about that in the government, but I'm not in the government anymore, so I can say whatever I want. Um, But that's true. Like if we're not the place where everyone in the world wants to come to do something cool and steal from and, you know that's what we need to maintain. And we are currently, but we, you know, there are some policies that might make that hard. So we need to make sure that we keep providing incentives to be here. Mm-hmm. One of the exciting things about this is that we spent on this podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about how government doesn't work, all the disasters and how, you know, the partisanship, why things don't get done. But this is a pretty inspiring story where the United States is leading and actually doing really, really good work. Yeah, I think that we need to do more, but I think we really are um, forward leading. I think in China is also very forward leaning here. Um, and their government has recognized whether it's for military or if, like I described all the reasons they just need to take care of their own people. Um, they're really investing heavily in this as well. Um, an article came out today about, um, the FBI is investigating a bunch of, uh, potential Chinese hacks into coronavirus research. So, Mm. but, but, you know, we're still the country they're trying to steal from. You know, when they when they're trying to steal from India or France and not us, that should be more concerning. So, yes, we need to be very kind of security focused, but forward leaning with security built in rather than kind of reactionary and defensive. Mm. Do you want to 
pivot real quick talk about some covid yeah <laughs> yeah sure. I think we've, got, we've got a covid <laughs> expert here so we've got to talk about it um i don't know where a good place to start is but uh titus maybe if you could talk about kind of your experience in the government you know you said you you recently left but if you hadn't left you would be knee deep in in this this right now so maybe talk about kind of your your impressions of what's playing out uh things that are striking you about about this you know the significant significance of it all yeah absolutely so two things to clarify one, I wouldn't say I'm a COVID expert, but I am a well-informed COVID hobbyist. Yeah, <laughs> hobbyist and enthusiast are not the right words, but whatever you would use analogs to those. Um, and the other thing is I had, I decided to leave the DOD about two weeks before COVID really became a big issue. So it was very poor timing. Um, so what but, did you know that made you leave? Right <laughs> entirely entirely personal where we wanted to go live in the woods <laughs> it was fortuitous but um to your uh build your point about this being an actually not covid but biotech being a, a good news story um biotech was considered a you know this top priority by the dod a year before covid really kicked off so that those weren't related but they was very kind of fortuitous in having this um kind of mindset uh being aware of this. And so if I was still at the DOD and the, the wonderful person who took over after me is spending a lot of time thinking about how do we as a country learn from what's going on, where are the pain points right now, so we can think about how to prevent that from being a pain point later. So again, I worked in the research and engineering side, so not the direct COVID response where you're you know, distributing ventilators and managing vaccine research but thinking, all right, this is a problem now. We're having a hard time producing vaccines fast enough. We're having a hard time sourcing enough, um, you know, on the biotech side, enough of these products. So how do we do that better? How do we manufacture faster? How do we um, develop new antibodies and new vaccines faster? Things like that. So all of those considerations are what um, the team that I was working with is very much thinking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess kind of a, a, a broader question, uh, having an, an insider's knowledge of how responses like this are, are kind of undertaken, what has been your kind of review and perspective of the response thus far uh, in terms of, uh, or I should, not in terms of, but um, on the part of the federal government and, and state government, how has policy been implemented? Where do you see the roadblocks? What information should be out there, uh, should be out there that isn't? What information is out there that shouldn't be and is, is, is you know, <laughs> disinformation? Um, like what, what has kind of been your, your take on, on the overarching um, situation? Yeah, I think that, so everyone who is the actual... Um, action officer level, if in DOD speak, the epidemiologists and the infectious disease experts are, are we have a, we have a world leading uh, kind of infectious disease uh, and pandemic response team. They have been the people who are leading this for, I can speak for the DOD, but it kind of, the federal government is, all of those people are very much talking, whether it's DOD, HHS, um, NIH, you know, as part of HHS, um, those people, we have some of the best people, best minds in the world working on this kind of stuff. I think that where it breaks down is the, is the coordination level. So we have phenomenal science. We have phenomenal technology. 
Um, but coordinating all of that is, is not going the way that ideally would happen. Um, and I think that that's in part because the last time we had a pandemic like this, it was a hundred years ago. So even the government has a relatively short memory when it comes, I mean, a hundred years isn't that short, but on a, um, so that's, so that's the challenge. And so I think if we're going to prevent or improve on this later, that we need to continue to make, you know, progress in technology, but having better systems for actual coordinating. So a good example, um, I don't know the specific numbers, but when, when this all starts happening, everyone who wants to help within the government says, anyone who has an idea, send it to us. We want to hear all your ideas, which is a great gut reaction until you get 3,000 two-page white papers (laughs) and you only understand 12 of them, right? So, so that's like, but that's a, that's a great example of everyone trying to help, um, but not having a great kind of way to curate and triage these things. Um, So I think we're just in an unprecedented issue right now as well. Mm. I I can't help but think of this. I'll, I'll, pull out my, you know, nerdy political science side here. Uh, Graham Allison, who you know, writes about like the ways bureaucracies function and, and talks about how uh, basically bureaucracies don't change unless uh, there's a handful of circumstances, but one of them is massive failure, right? I mean, it, there's, this hasn't happened before and you realize the shortcomings when you get in the middle of it, it was the same thing with intelligence failures in September 11th and whatnot. Yeah. And so there's almost certainly, I would imagine going to be some level of change to governmental infrastructure and coordination and whatnot after this, because we realize the ways in which we've uh, fallen short or failed. Right. Doesn't I help right now. Right? Right. I guarantee the after action report of this is going to be painful and, un- yeah. and uncomfortable for everyone to, to review it and, and read that. But I, I am hopeful that we do have some, some shifts to make this, to try to make this not a problem again. Could you talk about, you know, I, I'm thinking about the way in which uh, frustratingly this has been politicized, you know, like now wearing a mask has become a political act. When you get to the level that you were at, did you see politics or or was it really just the scientists doing their work? Because I think there are a lot of people that think inside government politics drips down to all levels. But but I, my hope is that it doesn't. So what was your sense when you were in there? You know, were the scientists allowed to do the kind of work they want to do and make the recommendations that they believed in? So I think that the, I think that it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, I think some were and some were not. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. So as as anything, leadership is everything. Um, and so I was fortunate to be working part of the organization where they were technologists who were you know ph- phenomenal leaders who are you know had a, a storied career and all this kind of stuff and really took technology to heart. And so they put that front and center. That's not true for everyone who's a leader right now. Um, you know, technology is not always, and some would say rarely, but I would say just not enough of the kind of priority in terms of decision-making. Um, so I think, I think it depends on what part you're talking about. And that's, again, where the challenge of coordination comes from. Because if one thing, you know, the bureaucracy, one thing in the federal government is rarely one entity has the ability to do everything from start to finish on its own. Um, and I actually had in some situations, I appreciated that because you want to be able to have those, those checks and balances, but that's the challenge when one group, it has the leeway to, to act and the other doesn't, that's where we have that breakdown in coordination. Mm -hmm. 
should we nick should we talk beer we're going to continue these conversations but should we talk beer and then move on uh yeah sorry i was just i was looking if there was anything else yeah yeah let's do that okay titus why don't you start us off and tell us about your beer <laughs> yeah so i'm actually drinking a homebrew today because this is a, a goes that we uh my wife and i brewed back when we lived in dc so we just moved from dc to new hampshire um and we we brewed this in dc and then immediately decided we needed to get the heck out of dodge and move to new hampshire as soon as we could so we in the u-haul had a seat belt around our <laughs> fermenter um, and we and we finally made it here. So I had to drive a U-Haul truck with a trailer through Manhattan with a <laughs> five gallons of beer wart seat belted into my car. <laughs> almost drove over the, I almost drove into one of the bridges. So I had a cop come over, pull me over, take me around so I could go on top of the bridge. So this beer has gone through COVID hell. Um, <laughs> and so we decided to call it, we'll see how it goes. Um, so if the raspberry goes, uh, it's actually turned out quite well, given the circumstances. So that's where we're at right now. Well done. <laughs> Very cool. Can you cross state lines with your own homebrew? Is there, are there laws against that? I don't know. Someone's going to call me. In New Hampshire, you can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> at that point, there was no alcohol and it was all sugar. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, what are you having? So I am uh, having a uh, Jack's Abbey house lager. Um, I, I'm sh- here's the can. I'm I'm dropping things. Here goes the can. <laughs> I'm beer in. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm switching it up from my normal IPA and double IPA thing that I've been doing for a while. Um, and you you all know that I like a lager every now and then, especially this time of year when it's starting to warm up. Uh, and I, this is a really nice lager. It's not like one of those that is that really stands out as fantastic, uh, but it's really good. Um, you know, it's kind of we've talked about before. It's kind of hard for a lager to really sort of excel, right? Mm-hmm. Like even a, a really good lager is still just yeah, it's good. Um, and this is this this qualifies as that. This is one of those. You also know that I like a you know after you've mowed the grass beer, this meets that qualification. It's really good. Um, it's, it's, it's very nice. Yeah. I, I would, not only would I have more, I've got a six pack of them in my, in my fridge right now. So <laughs> very good. Nick, what are you enjoying? Uh, I am having a, uh, a good behavior crushable IPA from Odell Brewing. That's what it looks like. They are out of, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really recall us having any of their stuff, uh, prior to this. Um, I, I thought it was interesting given the, uh, the civil liberties discussions that we've been having based on the can. Um, but, uh, this is an interesting one. Normally IPAs fit into a, a, a very, a very distinct category, especially on, on this podcast. This is, I'm not sure I've really had one like this. It's very hoppy, but it's tart and there's zero sweetness to it. And it's very, very effervescent. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's clear. I, I would expect something that has this kind of profile to be a, a little bit heavier. You're really selling little, it, Nick. <laughs> no, like, it's, it's just, it's what it is. Hey man, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. What are you talking about? That's my job on this podcast is to take you two down a notch. Um, it, honestly, it's, I, I, and I'm not saying it's bad, it's different. And it's honestly, it's kind of a refreshing take on an IPA. It's something that I never really thought that I wanted, but I, I can definitely see myself drinking more of it. And with COVID going on, now I just get like six or 12 packs of beer or stuff I haven't tried. And whether I like it or not, it's there now. So, you yeah. know, we'll still be going through it. I would recommend though. 
Nice. I'm having a Trouble Blaster. Here's the the can from Buckle Down Brewery. That's out of uh, close to us in Naperville, or Lyle, Illinois. It's their uh, double dry hopped IPA, uh, and they describe it as it's so drinkable. Um, and it is like it's uh, it's really it's kind of a light double IPA. Tons of hops, but not like over the head. Uh, it doesn't hit you too hard. Uh, very very citrusy as well. So it's. Uh, uh, Phil, you've gotten us onto these double dry hopped. Uh, it's good. They're really good. Before we went on the air, you weren't sold on this beer, but are, are you, did it grow on you or it you just mellowed a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. It has like the, the, the citrusy stuff came out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting more used to the hops. No, I actually, I, I kind of like it now. Um, yeah. And, uh, Buckle Down Brewery is great. Like they're a local brewery, really like what they do. And, uh, and it's a, it's a nice can. It's I'm, in- I'm from Oregon and I have a very specific set of expectations for IPA. So, uh, you know, it runs in my blood hops. That's why, that's why all my biotech conversations talk about beer. So I was the guy at the Pentagon as well, who had a picture of a pint, um, on all of his formal presentations. I bet that made you more popular than the brick. <laughs> yeah, it did, it did. It did. Like, this guy's great. Oh man, but he's got a brick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, uh, like we say, uh, on every podcast, if you guys want to, uh, check out the beers that we have, uh, you can follow us on untapped on iOS or Android, which I definitely forgot at the be- the beginning now that I'm remembering, um, just look for Barstool politics on there and you will find uh, all the reviews that we, that we do. Time for some speed round. Yes, sir. All right. So while there has been much debate about whether COVID-19 originated in a Wuhan wet market or a Chinese lab, there are larger and arguably more important questions about whether, at a macro level, our modern lifestyle choices are contributing to an increase in global pandemics. The CDC has estimated that three quarters of new human diseases originated in animals. Some have suggested that our modern factory farms, livestock practices, increased human encroachment on nature, and climate change are exacerbating the problem and making pandemics more likely. As an example, I'm pretty sure that just in the course of taping this podcast, Phil has been bitten by at least three bats. Two um, raccoons this afternoon. <laughs> How's that pangolin doing? Right. Yeah. Titus, is our focus on whether COVID-19 originated in a wet market or a lab too narrow? Do we need to start thinking about whether our interactions with nature and the planet are playing a role? Does Phil need to stop eating so much meat? Uh, oh. <laughs> and without dramatic change, should we expect this to be the new normal for our globalized world? I know that's a lot of questions. So where would you like to start? Uh, I do think that the the conversation about whether or not it, it's not an engineered thing, but the conversation right there is a way to distract from the issue of overall, we need to be able to to respond to these kind of things. I do think that in, as we're as we're globalizing, we are in, interacting with animals more. And that is where a lot of these kind of zoonotic transmissions, as it's called, when it transitions from animal to human, are going to happen a lot. Um, and this is one of those issues. So when we think about from the national security standpoint, you don't ever have nuclear weapons just walking out of the jungle and killing people. They don't just naturally occur, but you can have Ebola walk out of the jungle or ride out of the jungle on the back of an, a gorilla and kill thousands of people or coronavirus come out of the, a market on a bat and kill th- hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, we're certainly going to have a lot more of this. Uh, well, I don't know if we're going to have a lot more of this, but by interacting more deeper into new areas, you know, as we cut down forests and interact with environments that we haven't before, we're not going to have kind of natural immunity or have seen a lot of these things. And there's so many different versions of viruses and bacteria that we have never seen. We're going to, but that's why I always think that we need to be better at using biotech. If we can produce uh, a vaccine faster, then we we start to 
tip that balance. So if we're going to have more interaction, we need to be able to stop those kind of things more. Mm-hmm. Phil? No, I mean, I, so is it in some ways, I mean, you gave a sort of a positive response to that, right? We need to be prepared for it. Is it, is it inevitable or is there something that we can be doing to, it's not just that, that we're encroaching more on, on the environment. It's also that we're traveling around the world more often. Like the, the diseases not only, you know, pop up, it seems like more easily, they also spread more easily. Is this just the future that we live with and so we start thinking solutions or is it something that we can do to decrease our risk on the front end does that make sense yeah i mean i think a lot of good hygiene is a huge area of mm-hmm. uh of decreasing risk i mean washing hands the whole reason why washing your hands works is because the soap actually breaks apart the membrane of these viruses and so you know, high quality hygiene is something that we all need to do no matter what. I mean, not just for coronavirus, but for life. So we're um, doomed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it is inevitable. Is yeah, basically, <laughs> a lot of guys sitting in the backyard drinking beer are probably going to get infections. <laughs> it, it strikes me, you were talking about the, the Department of Defense, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but the, the challenges that they are have to think about are so different these days, right? In, in some ways, it was easy when you just had to worry about about armies invading. Now you've got to think about, I mean, you've got to think about pandemics. I mean, climate change. I know the DOD thinks about that, you know, in a dramatic way, like the, the ways in which people are going to be impacted and then the ripple effect of that, right? So think about climate or pandemic. This is certainly going to cause uh, migration issues. You're going to have immigration issues and, and refugees and all of that, right? The, the, the challenge of confronting and keeping the country safe is, is just dramatically different than it was 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's where the whole concept of these strategic power competitions are coming from, because this responding to this kind of uber complicated chess game of global politics is just phenomenal. I actually just, I only read the headline, so you can't quote me on any of the content, but I just read a headline in a defense magazine that was saying that someone in SOCOM is saying it's not just door kickers that SOCOM needs, it's going to be a lot more cyber focused. Right. So we're thinking we're even moving special operations into the cyber domain and that makes everything more and everything's more connected. Right. How many devices do each of us have in our room that can listen to things and collect things? And yeah, I think that it's phenomenally complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, me, I have to, to be the, the consummate pessimist and realist of the group. Um, I, 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 I personally think that you know, again, Titus, you make a very good point for the work that the DOD and the federal government is doing in terms of biotechnology and preparedness. I do think that there is certainly a wider globalism geopolitics conversation to be had about the way societies operate, how we interact with those societies, how globalism has, unfettered globalism has kind of brought us to a point where we have to constantly think about what threat is around the corner that isn't necessarily a, a standard threat to your point, Bill, uh, when we're talking about uh, armies invading or, or something like that, uh, and and what that means for the future of interacting with countries that aren't necessarily following the same blueprint that, that we are. Um, you know, everyone has their own opinion on the way China has handled this. I, I personally think that they're, regardless of the, the actual origin of the virus, they're at least the initial opaqueness about how it was spread, the 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 actual statistics and and numbers of uh, 
of uh, uh, infected in their population is is something to take into account about how we operate after this is all said and done. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's what the world is going to look like after this is, is exceptionally, I think it's different and, and, and scary considering what, if we don't learn from this, we're going to be back in the situation um, sooner rather than later, which is, which is a frightening thought. It's, it's an interesting question to think about China, a lack of transparency and, and whether, I mean, Tiny, so thinking about like synthetic biology and going back to what we were hitting on the first topic, does transparency between states, is, is that, does that matter? Is that more helpful or less helpful? I mean, are states interacting on this or is this something where the United States is going to do what it's going to do? China is going to do what it's, it's going to do? Or is, is there value in having some, uh, some more cosmopolitan approach to this? No, it's absolutely not going to be isolationist kind of technology. Um, not at all. So, I, I mean, I gave the example where uh, a phage was found in South Africa stored in Pittsburgh and saved someone in the UK. That's a perfect example of how this is going to be so global. So transparency is huge. And if you think about all these, you know, genetic parts, these Lego parts, if you will, um, for a bad analogy, if anywhere that has huge biodiversity is going to have a diversity of these kind of tools that we can use. Um, so, you I mean, anywhere from, you know, the the equator to the Antarctic is going to have some kind of bacteria. You know, in a lot of these things, you find these extremophiles, so organisms that like to live in extreme heat, extreme cold, low oxygen, whatever, and they're going to have something unique about them that we could use as a tool to engineer. So, but those aren't all in one spot. There's a lot of countries that are very small that have very little in terms of the diversity of their biome, and they're going to have to depend on other. So, I mean, the U.S. has a huge diversity, so we're a little bit of ahead of the game in that regard. Um, but, I mean, we've seen right now the pandemic is not doesn't respect borders. Mm-hmm. Not like it walks up and says, all right, I'm only a Canadian virus. <laughs> I can't go into the U.S., Oh, thank God. <laughs> it's an example of how, you know, we as academics sort of live in our own little world, but it, all of this intersects, right? It, it, you get in, I think about the politics of this and, and the, the, you talk about biodiversity and I think of the issue of development and, you know, the, tropical parts of the world that are, that are developing that have tremendous biodiversity and have in their incentive oftentimes to develop in ways that damage that biodiversity or maybe expose us to, you know, bio, biological threats or whatever. So you have to mix these political questions of, of development along with these questions of, you know, biological safety. And, and we so often don't think across, you know, uh, across fields in ways that are, that are really important. Phil, you're saying that Brazil shouldn't be cutting down the rainforest? <laughs> You know. Now you just sound like a communist. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but it's—I um, mean, it's there's so much out. So that's one reason why, if we have more products that can be engineered out of these this diversity, then there's incentive to preserve it. Hmm. Um, that's kind of a idealist, like you know, hmm. let's save the rainforest with hmm. biotech. But it's it's not too far off from reality, right? As 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 different species go extinct, we lose valuable genetic information where. Historically, we haven't used it and been able to use it, but we're at a point where we might be able to. Historically, the times that it's been successful is when it has become more profitable to preserve than to destroy, right? And that's, right. that's yeah, that's yeah, a good point. So there's a huge economic argument, but economic arguments are really the only thing that in the long run shifts major decisions. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
All right, Nick, we should jump to the next topic. Yes, sir. All right. So time to talk about the really scary stuff. Uh, since we have an expert on biosecurity who has spent countless hours thinking about the threats facing the country, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask what keeps you up at night. Uh, is there is it the threat of another global pandemic, bioterrorism, nuclear weapons, climate change, or maybe those murder hornets? Um, <laughs> we've often talked on the podcast about how much our world has changed since the Cold War and how many new threats have emerged. Uh, looking back, the Cold War really does seem quaint to me now. So, so Titus, when you look out at the world, what keeps you up at night? Um, I would, I would say that it really is both a, a. Then they're tied together. So it's a it's a global economic competition along with this kind of bio threats because those are going to be hand in hand. The country that is the leading country in using these technologies can use them for whatever purpose you want. Um, I always used to make a dramatic statement of, you know, people talk about bioweapons. And if I walk down the street and beat someone with a wooden baseball bat, that's a bioweapon, right? But there's the, there's the dramatic, cute examples of what a bioweapon is all the way to, if we can engineer organisms to do new things, you can do good or bad. And so that's both going to, it's going to be kind of a dual hit, if you will, for if countries are willing to go there, um, if they're the leading country in the world that doing that by using biotech and they're willing to use it for bad that is the kind of thing that because if we're the leading country in the world at biotech and someone else wants to use it for bad then we have the ability to prevent that bad but if we are not as sophisticated not as advanced and the other country that is is not as um you know it doesn't have as good attentions that's the that's the combination that keeps me up at night there's some parallel to the development of nuclear weapons there, thinking about right, that, it. That's what I was just yeah. thinking about in arms races and, and what do you do you foresee this as kind of a I mean, we, we talked in the first topic a little bit about kind of arms races and, and whatnot. So if we switch from the good and the you know, you can be an economic leader by being good. Do you see this developing into on the bad side, some sort of I, I have this old, you know, IR sense of bio, biological weapons, which is, you know, anthrax and the weaponization of, you know, whatever botulinum toxin or whatever. And this is this is like a whole nother world that I can't even wrap my head around is do you see 50 years in the future this being kind of a new you know, weaponized arms race? I think we have the benefit of that not happening by we now have the Biological Weapons Convention, the Chemical Weapons Convention, yeah. the Nuclear Weapons Convention. So we at least have put those international treaties in place, recognizing that that nuclear arms race happened. Now, I think it's going to be more of a, in my personal opinion, it's going to be more of a arms drag where we're mm -hmm. kicking and screaming to prevent the progress of anyone who wants to use it for bad. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a race to the arms. I think that we've at least recognized that that's a risk already and we're trying to stop that. So when you say arms drag, you don't envision 1960s US Soviet Union, you envision more like 2020 Iran, North Korea type of thing, like trying to prevent bad actors from right. weaponizing. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, we at least learned how scary the arms race was from the nuclear weapons and put in place mechanisms. Many people, you can debate the efficacy of those, but at least the intention is there to slow that down. 
as you, you know, as you were talking, it made me think about these, you know, the international agreements that you mentioned. And this is such a new place to be, and the technology is so new. Is there is there a need to upgrade or rethink some of those conventions, those global conventions dealing with, uh, you know, with biological weapons or not for this new world that we're entering into? I mean, it just it just seems like a convention that was written years ago may not fully anticipate everything that's coming in the next twenty five years. Yeah, 100%. And I also think not just anticipate, but also relax in the areas where we realize we're preventing things that were that are good. So, so there's the international version, the US has an, an implementing law that's actually more strict than the than the international treaty. But that was signed and that was created before we could do all the engineering we do now. So I'm not an expert in the BWC, the Biological Weapons Convention, but I would imagine that there's going to be stipulations in there that while had great intentions to prevent bad things would potentially limit um, benefits in terms of, you know, all the, all the benefits we could come up with. So it's not just updating to prevent new threats, but it's updating. And I wouldn't say relax or strength, you know, make stronger. I would just say update uh, to allow a totally new reality. That's really interesting to think about. Biological Weapons Convention was 1970s. Is that right? I think it's. I, I think so. Yeah. Which, in like grand history, feels like yesterday, but in the history of like technology, is ages and ages and ages ago. That's really right. interesting. I mean, we talk about AI every day now, or you know, it's just like in mainstream media. And in reality, the resurgence happened in 2012. Hmm. It was eight years ago. Man. So, That's... and then how how fast technology has changed in the last eight years? It's crazy. That's stunning. Nick, did you want to, I'm sorry, we were, we were monopolizing the conversation. No, 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 no. It, it's really, <clears throat> it's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, I, I mean, kind of alluding back to, to what I had mentioned earlier, I feel like, uh, especially talking about uh, international treaties and agreements that a lot of this gets put in place after there's been some sort of uh, incident or moment in history that kind of forces countries and, and, and different groups to kind of align at least momentarily uh, to work towards a, a more positive goal. Um, I feel like with especially something like COVID uh, or, or, you know, a, a, another form of, of um, um, not necessarily a, a disease, but some form of biotechnology focused uh, uh, crisis um, that the results that would require us or not require us that would lead us to get to uh, a point where we're talking about an international agreement to prevent it in the future, considering what we're seeing now and the effect that it's having on the global economy, I feel like that's that's a really scary thought to think what it would take to get us to a point, especially when we have this dichotomy between the U.S. and China and 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 uh, uh, Russia to some extent, um, and coming to an agreement where this doesn't happen anymore, where there's not the threat of a, a nuclear war or something that's very apparent uh, and finite, uh, a moment in history that we all kind of get behind. Um, but something like this that kind of realigns the the global order, especially in an economic sense, uh, is is a concern more than anything. What what would it? What do you think would would take? Um, what would it take to to get us to a point where we actually agree on the? Um, I don't know, the, the cornerstones of, of preventing something like COVID-19 from happening again uh, in the future, if that makes any sort of appreciable sense. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea because I just I made a comment earlier that the economic arguments, the ultimate argument, no one can argue with how 
shitty the economic impact is of this, right? Whether you're a business or a nation or trying to retire, this is not good for anyone's economic standing. So purely on a profit standpoint, we could make the argument that we all need to get together and just stop this, solve it, Mm -hmm. come together. Because if you're purely from an investor standpoint, you have no interest in altruism, there's still incentive. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it's even more incentive when you're, when you care about human life and you're not just thinking about it from profit. So I, I have no idea. I'm unfamiliar with that concept. So I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good point to transition to like our forward looking question. So we thought it might be fun to finish by taking a step back and looking at how we, how we think the novel coronavirus is going to change our globalized world. A large percentage of the world is now at home social distancing. Domestic and international travel has come to a halt. The global economy is in free fall. And despite President Trump's proclamation that we are transitioning to greatness, it is not clear that we will return to normal anytime soon. Yet despite all the despair, the stock market has been solid, largely on the belief that there will soon be a technological breakthrough. Titus, why don't you start us off? I imagine that because of the nature of your work, you see both tremendous opportunity and threat in the world today. So what's your sense of what globalization is going to look like moving forward? I really think we're going to spend a lot more time doing exactly this, working remotely. Um, right? Google, Facebook, Twitter have all announced that they're going to be remote until the end of 2020. I think Twitter or no into 21 Twitter Mm -hmm. has even said indefinitely, I believe. So you have major companies um, who are, you know, the massive population when you get to density who are saying, yeah, don't come back to this dense spot. Let's so, I mean, I think you're going to see that across the board. Um, You know, maybe not into the dramatic, to the dramatic level where we never come back together, but I think we're going to see that for a long time. I would say, though, that from a kind of stock market standpoint, yeah, there's a lot of technology right now where companies that are likely going to have a hard time in the stock market. But I think that's going to drive a whole new set of companies um, mm. to really take their place uh, in those kind of Fortune 500 index kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, if you think of independent of Zoom security issues, companies like Zoom, WebEx, you know, GoToMeeting, all those kind of things, we're going to have a whole new set of um, players that are going to take up that that uh, kind of liquid capital or shifting capital. I just think about like education, and we're we're in a higher ed here. You know, the the, the higher ed world is going to shift dramatically because of this. It doesn't mean that the old <laughs> system of sitting in the classroom goes away, but it's going to be augmented by this this new reality that we're in. Mm-hmm. Phil, Phil, you want to go? Yeah, I mean, I so I tend to think when I think about the future and what it, it looks like, and the education example maybe is a good one to to build off of. I, I tend to think political, and I, and I think there are right lessons in. Well, let me step back for a second. I, we've we've embraced kind of globalization and free trade for a long time now, right? I mean, it has been the the direction of of the world for you know certainly for the last you know, 40, 50 years, but arguably much longer than that. It, it seems like with what has come from coronavirus there are right lessons and wrong lessons that can be learned. One of the wrong lessons would be that globalization is bad and we should sort of totally look inward and withdraw. And I could see some shift of, you know, nationalism and sort of withdrawal and, you know, autarky and all sorts of other stuff coming in to play. And I I imagine we will see that in parts of the world. It's called transition Um, to greatness, Phil. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. 
there are there are also I mean, there's a whole debate to be had about, you know, who wins and who loses from globalization and, and trade. But, you know, the the general argument is that globalization and trade is, you know, the costs are outweighed by the benefits. But you have to invest those benefits properly, right? You have to actually, the benefits, the economic income that comes in, you have to, you know, invest in technology. You have to invest in society. And, and it feels like some of the way that we haven't done that is being revealed now, whether it's investing in infrastructure that deals with, you know, medicine or, you know, whether it's investing in infrastructure that deals with pr certain key levels of production, right? We have outsourced so much stuff, which makes a lot of sense financially, but when it comes to security issues, it has, you know, has some problems. And and so I, I imagine there will be some re-evaluation of globalization. And I think the right way to reevaluate that could be to think about how we operate in a globalized world and what sorts of tweaks and changes we might make. My fear is that too many people will jump to the wrong conclusions about this, which is that globalization in and of itself is bad. And so we, and there's pushback against that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, because of that, I don't know that I have a good prediction of what this looks like, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, because it, it sort of depends on how we interpret it. I, what do you think, Bill? Is, are we going to come out of this better or worse? Well, you know, just as you were talking, it made me think of there was an article today talking about how some of the, the, the more populist nationalist leaders are handling the coronavirus. And it's not well, right? I mean, you think about uh, the, the those those leaders who are embracing the more isolationist, the more nationalistic, uh, pushing back against globalization, that leadership is not translating into an effective response to COVID, right? And, and I think that matters, right? I, I think you're absolutely right that there is going to be a political incentive to pull back. Uh, but if you're not delivering the results, it's not it's not going to work. So I, I, I'm torn. I'm fe very fearful of the rise of nationalism, because this is one of these, we often talk about paradigm changing moments. This is what this feels like. There's opportunity to move one way or the other. Uh, I guess I'm a little heartened by the fact that some of the more what I see as dangerous actors uh, that are peddling some of this nationalism and populism are, are not doing well. Uh, and I, I would say Trump is included in that group, right? I think there's mm -hmm. his brand is taking a hit because he hasn't handled this as well as he could have. Mm -hmm. um, better is such, such a subjective term. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I tend to look at these things from a, a geopolitical economic standpoint more than anything else. In terms of domestic response uh, from the American people, yeah, I, I think you see a not abandonment, but certainly a surge uh, out of densely populated cities, which I think could be significantly uh, uh, positive for for a lot of blighted areas of the country and and have new centers of, of industry and commerce that, that didn't exist prior to this. Um, in terms of the, the discourse that we're having uh, as a country uh, and certainly at the uh, at the, the government level. I don't see this being a paradigm shifting moment at all. I think that this process of self-segregation and self-isolation uh, that we've kind of gone through over the past, I don't know, eight years or so uh, that we continue to kind of go down, given the response that we've had with COVID so far, you would expect that there would be a significantly, that there would be more uh more of a tilt one way or the other that the majority of americans were were in favor for and you're not seeing that we kind of teeter around that same kind of two to five percentage points uh and then go back the other way um 
I think that the way that we view this isn't going to garner the kind of response that we want it to on a domestic level. On an international level, I think the the scarier thing is that regardless of what you think of globalization, there's already kind of a a self uh, sorting on an international level that we've kind of seen. And when you talk about the dichotomy between the US and China, you know, history tends to repeat itself. And I can easily see this turning into kind of a, a sorting between the two camps again. Uh, you know, it no longer is it, you know, the original Cold War between Russia and the US, but this seems to be, and we've already kind of seen it on an economic level. Uh, the way that China interacts with with different countries in terms of the Belt and Road program and the way that the U.S. is trying to uh, garner increased influence in Southeast Asia again, that there's an effort to take sides and to bolster your side. And I think that this will give credence to both sides to do that. Um, I guess it'll depend somewhat on the leadership that's in place, uh, certainly after the election. But to some extent, I think that globalism as we know it, as as it has operated for the past 40 to 50 years is is gone. You know, I, I hope on an intellectual level, it, it continues to operate the way that that we want it to. But from a geopolitical standpoint, I, I don't think we ever get back to that point. I'm I'm personally not overly upset about it. But, but you know, that's that's my personal thoughts. This is a, an example of where like the the direction you come at this from matters because from a political standpoint I think you're right Nick globalization could look different from sort of a technology standpoint it doesn't matter what we think of globalization right it's right. happening right there's no going back on it and so uh you know that it, it that kind of alters things too it'll it'll be interesting to see how individual people react because I I like you Nick wouldn't be surprised to see people's behavior changing I also wouldn't be surprised if this, you know, we push through this in a year and everybody just, I, I saw that Carnival Cruises started booking cruises again and they had like 600% 600, increase in right. bookings. So mm -hmm. in some ways, some people, I think, I think maybe people aren't going to change at all. Like this is going to pass and everybody's going to go back to doing everything the way they did before all of this started. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly possible. It's going to be weird the first time I shake someone's hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I think to the point like uh, some of this will be driven by the economic side of it as well. If there is if there's money to be made by continuing to have this global marketplace, it's 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 going to drive it and we're going to be pulled along with it. Uh, and, and I think we're going to be pulled in a way that will change our lives to the point that Titus made earlier that I think a lot of it is going to be more remote. Uh, I think businesses will see the value in not having to buy these big buildings where everybody comes into. Um, if you can have your employees stay at home and save you know, an hour each day and commute, right? That there's value in that. Um, so I think the market mm -hmm. will dictate much of what globalization looks like in the future. Absolutely. Um, the bell ring, Nick. Oh we yeah, did. long time. Oh, ago. then we got to stop. The bell ring. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was our last topic, right? It was. Um, Titus, thank you so much for joining us. We Absolutely. we really appreciate you being here. Um. And then uh, you're on uh, you're on Twitter, correct? I am one Alexander Titus. Great, definitely give him a follow. Uh, really interesting stuff, obviously. Um, and then for us, uh, all the stuff that I said at the beginning. If you guys uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, 
uh, our live shows, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're going to find every Wednesday roughly around 4.30 uh, on Facebook and our YouTube channel, which you'll find a link on our social channels. Um, the podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Uh, you can find the beers that we try on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, our merch line is on teespring.com. Uh, again, look for a link on our uh, social channels. Uh, and there's one week left in our giveaway to get uh, a, a full set of all the gear that we have uh, on Teespring. So that's a, a mug, a T-shirt, and a hoodie currently. Uh, you'll find no a hat. link to that. No, no, <laughs> no hat. hat. No hat. There's no hat. I promise there's no hat. <clears throat> you'll find a link uh, to enter that uh, on social as well. Uh, I'll put that out after uh, we, we put the podcast up. Um, anything else that I missed? I feel like that list gets longer and longer every time we do it. But people love it. People love the list, Nick. It's the best part of the podcast. <laughs> All right. Again, Titus, thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Come join us again. You know, it, it was great. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Awesome. Thank you, guys.